why does the centrifugal term tend to throw the particle outward from the origin? Actual student answer. The centrifugal term is a positive potential energy term of one of our squared dependence. Objects move from regions with high potential energies, the origin to regions with low potential energies. So when we do quantum mechanics, it's good to think about potentials instead of forces because particles don't travel on classical paths. So if you look at the potential, you can see globally what's going on a little more easily. see. Questions, things that people were confused about. The text just throws in the Bessel function and Neumann function. It's difficult to understand how it goes from equation 4.45. Just know that JL is the spherical Bessel function and NL is the spherical Neumann function. And what are the physical interpretations to the Bessel functions? So he knew that because he didn't fall asleep in math methods class. But this is not math methods class. So we're not here to learn how to solve differential equations. You guys already know that. Or you're going to learn that somewhere else. So we're just going to take the equations and usually we'll say, this is the equation we get from the physics. And some mathematician tells us the answer is this. That's the solution of the differential equation. Uh, so in this particular case, because the wave functions are proportional to these Bessel functions, these Bessel functions tell us probability densities as a function of the radial coordinate in this particular case. So that's the physical interpretation. I was not sure about the statement that the Coulomb potential admits continuum states describing electron-proton scattering. So if we have an electron orbiting around a proton, if we give it an energy, it goes up to a higher orbital. If you give it enough energy, you can kick it out of the hydrogen atom, right? So there must be quantum mechanical solutions of electrons that are not bound to protons. Those are electrons that are just flying around somewhere, or coming in, going around the hydrogen, or the nucleus, the proton, and going off to infinity again, scattering solutions. So uh, quantum mechanics has to account for both the bound states and the scattering solutions. So those exist, but we won't spend too much time until the end of the course thinking about things like that. Uh, I was confused because quantum mechanics has a centrifugal term without having explicit rotation. So when we de derive this effective radial Schrodinger equation, uh, we use the three-dimensional grad squared, which in spherical coordinates we write as a piece that has an angular momentum. You knew that there was angular momentum in three dimensions. So because there is angular momentum in three dimensions, there you're implicitly taking into account that things can rotate. And that's why they, when you reduce it to a factor out the angular dependence, we're assuming that it has a fixed angular momentum to do that step. So that's why that centrifugal term is there. What kind of space do eigenfunctions live in? Well, they live in function space. Um, you can think, let's see. If you imagine approximating some arbitrary function, one thing you can do is take its values at some discrete points. You could think of each one of these as being a direction in a vector space. So if I approximate it by 100 points, that's a 100-dimensional vector space. As I add more and more points, 
my vector space has more and more dimensions, and I get a better approximation to the function. So a function is an infinite dimensional vector space. Or it lives in an infinite dimensional vector space. Each value of the coordinate corresponds to a value of the function. So that's its value in that coordinate direction. When we have a power series that blows up, why can we impose a term j max such that terms following are all zero? Um, if we're solving for a wave function, wave functions tell us probability densities. Probabilities have to be finite. The probability that everything, that all possible things happen has to be one. It can't be bigger than one. So we can't have infinite probabilities. So we have to impose the wave functions are finite. Uh, at higher quantum numbers, why does spherical asymmetry arise from a spherical potential? So this is not something particular to quantum mechanics. So imagine the Earth going around the sun. The potential is 1 over r, spherically symmetric. Is the orbit of the Earth spherically symmetric? It's in a plane. It's not spherically symmetric. Because there's some initial condition. There's some non-zero angular momentum. So just because a Hamiltonian has a symmetry doesn't mean the solutions have that symmetry. Usually the lowest energy solution has the symmetry. But even then, not always. And that's actually one of the in really interesting things when you get to your graduate courses. You can look at cases where the, ground, the lowest energy solution does not have the symmetry. That's called spontaneous symmetry breaking. It's really cool but we're not allowed to talk about it. So last time we started talking about how to do our problems with spherically symmetric potentials, potentials that only depend on the radial coordinate. So we went to spherical coordinates. We looked up the formula for grad squared in spherical coordinates volume element in spherical coordinates. And then we're going to assume <coughs> that our wave function is a product of a function of the radial coordinate, a function of theta, and a function of phi. So to do that, let's rewrite the Schrodinger equation. So if we subtract the potential term from both sides, we can bring it over so it appears where the energy eigenvalue is, but with a minus sign. And we'll divide through by h bar squared and multiply by minus twice the mass. And if usually when we're thinking about these problems, there are two particles. There's one, particle one and particle two, and they're going around each other. And you're supposed to learn in classical mechanics that you can reduce that to a one particle problem by going to the center of mass coordinates and using a reduced mass. <coughs> so if we wanted to be very careful, uh, we would use the reduced mass here, not the actual electron mass. For now, we don't have to be careful, so you can just think of this as the electron mass or whatever particle we're thinking about. And for hydrogen, that's a pretty good approximation because the proton is 2,000 times heavier than the electron. So this is, if one is much bigger than the other, then the bottom part is the big guy, and that cancels with the big guy on top. So to a good approximation, when it's a heavy and light guy, this mass is reduced mass is just the mass of the light one anyway. Okay, so 
we're going to try to use separation of variables again. So we're going to plug this product form of the wave function into our Schrodinger equation. So if we write that out, uh, first term in grad squared has these derivatives with respect to the r, the radial coordinate. So those won't act on capital theta, which only depends on little theta, and capital phi, which only depends on little phi. It'll only act on capital R, which depends on the radial coordinate. And then the second and third terms only have angular derivatives, so that capital R will come out. First one only has theta derivatives, so capital phi will come out. last term only has d squared by d phi squared. So we have r capital theta up front with sine squared theta. And the derivative acts on capital phi. And that big mass is supposed to be minus twice the mass over h bar squared. Energy eigenvalue minus potential, which is a function of r, times the wave function. R theta phi. Let's divide through by R capital R theta and phi. Should I write it out again? Yes, busy scratching. So in this first term, capital theta and phi will cancel, so we'll just get one over R. And Let's multiply through by little r squared to make things nice and pretty. The second term will have a 1 over theta, capital theta up front. And the last term term that depends on phi. <coughs> this term only depends on r. This term only depends on r. These two terms both depend on theta. But phi dependence is only here. So we have an equation for capital phi. Solve. d squared by d phi squared of 
capital phi has to be some constant. It's capital phi. Wait, isn't there a theta? But as far as phi is concerned, concerned, that's a constant. Oh. I mean, when we look at the theta dependence, we'll have to keep both of these terms. term that depends on phi. So these other terms must be independent of phi. So that, so that means this has to be independent of phi. So there, this equation you've solved before, there are only two possible uh, there are two types of solutions depending on whether this constant is positive or negative. So if it's positive, then the solutions are exponentials. If it's negative, then the solutions are sines and cosines. But this capital phi is a function of little phi. Little phi is Theta is the angle from the z direction, and little phi is the angle in the xy plane. So once we go take phi around 2 pi, we have to get back to where we were. So we need periodic solutions. The wave function has to be periodic in phi and theta. Exponentials are not periodic functions. So the only possibility is that this constant is a negative number. And uh, by tradition, it's called minus m squared. So we can write our solution as some constant times e to the i m phi. sines and cosines are exponentials with complex arguments. And m can be positive or negative. We still want it to be periodic. So if we shift phi by 2 pi, which means we've rotated by 2 pi, then the wave function should go back to itself. So that tells us if we, if we shift phi by 2 pi, we're multiplying by e to the i m 2 pi. So e to the 2 pi i m, that would be 1. So m should be an integer.
now we've got we've solved part of the Schrodinger equation. We've got an angular wave function, and we've got some integer number, which is quantized. So this is one of the things we call a quantum number. Just pop that of our Schrodinger equation. So quantum number means that something got quantized, right? There's some classical observable that has eigenvalues labeled by these integers. So what's that observable? You're not supposed to know, but if, if you know, shout <coughs> it out. correspond to d squared by d phi squared. This is what the quantum mechanical operator is that has this eigenvalue, m squared. So let's think about what d by d phi represents. d by d phi, we try to go back to uh, Cartesian coordinates and write it as dx by d phi, d by dx dy by dy, d by dy, dz by dy, d by dz. And if we look at our definitions of x, y, and z, we can differentiate x with respect to phi, minus r sine theta, sine phi, d by dx. Differentiating y, R sine theta cos phi d by dy. Differentiating z with respect to phi, get zero. And then if we look at our magic formulas, this thing looks familiar. It's minus y. operator that represents the z component of the angular momentum. Because L is R cross P.
we can rewrite this equation we solved in terms of angular momentum. So we look at LZ squared acting on phi. Uh, multiply this equation by h bar over i squared. I'll give this minus h bar squared. So this equation tells us that Lz squared acting on phi is m squared h bar squared. Or given that we just wrote down the solution and I just erased it, we could ask what Lz acting on phi gives. Uh, since it was e to the i m phi. So Lz is h bar over i d by d phi acting on some constant times e to the i m phi. So d by d phi brings down an i m, the i's cancel. Get h bar m a e to the i m phi, which is h bar m capital phi. So phi is an eigenfunction of the z component of angular momentum. That's an eigenvalue h bar m. And that explains why I sneakily didn't take and the book. Didn't the book do this good? Sneakily didn't say that it, it was e to the i m phi plus e to the minus i m phi. Because then it would have been a mixture of states with different LZ. We chose this linear combination so that it would be an eigenstate of angular momentum Z component. Puzzled looks fly around the room. Please say something. Yeah. When we were learning quantum mechanics, at which point did you simply call shenanigans like that? Call what? Shenanigans. Shenanigans. Doesn't make sense if people have been forced to have. Uh, well, back in the day, 1927, people were just pulling things out of the hat because they were trying to figure out what was going on. But now that it's all well digested, we can just say this is the way it is. But did you get Oh, back when I was learning one. You were yes. learning it. Did um, you sit down in this, this same type of class and just simply stare at it and be like, no, really, can you do that? <laughs> uh, yeah. So Feynman has a famous quote about um, thinking about the why of quantum mechanics. So if you think about why quantum mechanics is the way it is, then you'll go down a rabbit hole and never physics research. So when you're a student, you're supposed to accept this is how the world works because people have done experiments and verified this. And you're supposed to pick, learn how to apply it. And then when you're when you're 65, then you can think about why. <laughs> <laughs> physics is not physics is not about why. Physics is about how and what. So you can try to come up with your interpretation of what, why this is and what it, what it means philosophically. But, uh, 
I mean, this is not pulled out of a hat, or at least it was pulled out of a hat, but you're used to it. We introduced this crazy cross product, you know, called the angular momentum, and all these things makes our life simpler to use this guy. Now I've just rewritten uh, it in terms of, well, you believe that momentum in quantum mechanics is represented by these operators, differential operators. So if you accepted that momentum is represented by an operator, then this just follows from that, that this is what angular momentum seems like I have to accept a lot to landing in pre-calculus when it's all this fun stuff that didn't really give us the basis behind everything, like why we needed it, why the company or you know, the year <coughs> But I'll just accept it. Well, the reason why we're learning it, I can answer, is because we want to understand things like the hydrogen atom and calculate its properties and quantum computers and So when I was learning it, they didn't separate variables, and we didn't explain why what m was. That was a later chapter uh, or later section. So that this is supposed to be helpful. That these quantum numbers that are popping out actually correspond to real things. So to finding out what L z was was relatively easy. And also, for a fun exercise, check what angular momentum squared is using the same ideas. So that's Lx squared plus Ly squared plus Lz squared. So you see, when you square these things, you're going to be a little careful because Py times Y is not multiplying two numbers, it's multiplying a derivative. So when you write squares of angular momentum, you have to keep track of the fact that these are operators. But it can be done. So if you write out what that is in terms of spherical coordinates, <coughs> derivatives, you should find this. <coughs> very familiar because it was on the board 15 minutes ago. That was the angular piece of that grad squared div squared operator that we wrote. So it's not going to be surprising that when we get to the effective one-dimensional Schrodinger equation there's going to be a term with angular momentum squared in it. solve for capital Phi, plugging that back in, get an equation 1 over R d by dr, R squared d capital R dr plus 
one over capital theta, sine theta, dividing theta, of sine theta, d capital theta, d theta, minus m squared over sine squared theta. So we plugged in that phi was e to the i m little phi. Took its second derivative and the e to the i m phi canceled because there was one over phi. Just like there was one over capital R and one over capital theta. is the only term that depends on theta. So we have another equation that we can solve. One over sine theta, d by d theta, sine theta, d capital theta, d theta, minus m squared over sine squared. So again, our wave function has to be periodic in theta as well as phi. So we want periodic solutions. So that means this number better be negative so that we get sines and cosines. And uh, traditional, because of tradition, we call it L times L plus 1. Why do we call it that, really? Because some famous dead French guy solved this equation a long time ago. And that's the notation he, he used. So since that day, everyone looks in the math textbook and finds the, the solution to this equation. So that's called uh, the associated Legendre function, as opposed to the Legendre function. So we can write capital data as some normalization factor times L M of cos theta. So it's labeled by an L because that's how we parameterize this constant. It's labeled by an M because we already used our phi dependence to get this eigenvalue. Legendre told us solutions can be written like this. 1 minus x. We write it as a function. That we'll write it as p of x because it's tiresome to write out cosine theta all the time. But this is not x, the coordinate in space. This is x, meaning that we're too lazy to write cos theta all the time. 
So it's 1 minus x squared to the absolute value of m over 2 d by dx to the absolute value of m times p sub l of x. And p sub l is the Legendre, L Legendre polynomial, which is also found by the same famous dead French guy. That's 1 over 2 to the L, L factorial, d by dx, the L, x squared minus 1 to the L. And this formula was found by Mr. Rodriguez. So the there are non-trivial solutions for L equals 0, 1, 2, positive integers. Yeah? What's the difference between P, M, L, and P? Uh, the names, I mean. So PL is this polynomial. And then given that polynomial, you can find PLM, which is the solution of that equation that we want. So PL and PLM are completely different functions, but one can be derived from the other using this. So presumably Mr. Legendre found this as a solution of some equation first, then he found solved that equation, and he liked P a lot. So what are these things? You guys, you guys have seen these in other classes. So let's write L, absolute value of M, and PLM cos theta. So when L and M are 0, this is just 1. That's good. Yeah. When L is 1 and M is 0, then we get cos theta. 2 and 0, we get 1 half, 3 cos squared, theta minus 1. Two and one, we get three cos theta, sine theta. Two and two, we get three sine squared theta. So, no, I missed one. One and one is sine theta. So if you look at uh, these cases, 0, 0, 1, 1, 2, 2, get sine to the 0, sine to the 1, sine squared. So if I asked you what 3, 3 was proportional to, any guesses? Sine cubed. Sine cubed. So we can see that from these formulas directly. Uh, P, L, L. If I set n equal to L, that should <coughs> look like 1 minus x squared to the L over 2.
that. So if I set m equal to l, I have d by dx to the l plus l. And this is x squared to the l. So that's this polynomial, polynomial piece here goes to like x to the 2l. And I differentiate with respect to x l times and l more times. I'll get a constant. And so I'll get 1 minus x squared to the l over 2. And x is cos theta. So 1 minus cos squared theta square root is sine theta. So this is sine theta to the l. Now we're going to try and figure out what these things mean. So here is what p0 means. So we said that p0 is 1. So if I take a slice through space in the xz plane, or the xy plane, or any plane that contains z, because this doesn't depend on phi, right? So it's independent of phi. So any slice that contains the z direction and then I start here. I start here because we measure theta from the z axis. And I start plotting this function as a function of that angle. So at theta equals 0, it's 1. Theta gets bigger, it's still 1. Theta gets bigger, it's still 1. So if I go around through all values of theta, I'll get half a circle. And then it's theta over here is the same as theta over here. So symmetrical. So that's what that function means as a function of theta. P one zero is cos theta. So we start at one, and as uh, the angle gets bigger, cos theta gets smaller. So eventually, when we get to ninety degrees, it's zero. Then as we go through <coughs> 90 degrees, uh, it's getting well, it's negative. So this is just plotting the, the modulus of the function. So we could have plotted we could have plotted cos theta in the usual way you plot it versus theta. But we're supposed to be trying to represent three-dimensional atoms eventually with these things. So we want to think about them in three-dimensional space. So here's sine theta. So starting at theta equals 0, it's 0. And as you increase theta, it gets bigger. And at pi over 2, it's 1. And it gets smaller again. So cos squared theta minus 1 times a half. So 
obviously this. <coughs> well, everyone, everyone has Mathematica. Everyone knows how to, everyone has a calculator. You can, uh, so if theta equals zero, this is three minus one is two over two, so it starts at one. And then it decreases down to uh, where cosine theta is squared is a third. I don't know what angle that is, but it's some angle around here. And then uh, absolute value starts increasing again. That's a local maximum at pi over 2 decreases again. P21, you guys get the idea? So we start at 0, we increase, go to 0. Sine squared, start at 0, increase. So we get these. So when we apply these to um, a hydrogen atom, since this works for any slice, you can imagine a volume of rotation. So rotate this thing around the z-axis. So this is giving you something like a donut where the center hole is squished. And this is giving you, if you rotate this around, there's a sort of cone up this way, a cone down that way. This one has some hair sticking out here and a tear down there, and then a funny donut around the center. So you can have lots of fun imagining what it looks like. Here's some even fancier ones. I think they have some of these in the book. I'll put this on the web page for your amusement. Get some intricate patterns. Oh. So any questions about Legendre polynomials and associated Legendre functions? So we've solved the theta equation and the phi equation. Put it all together. So we introduce yet another function. So we, we had solutions for L equals 0, 1, 2, 3. And if you look at that uh, formula for these associated Legendre function, m can take values that go from 0 plus or minus 1, plus or minus L. Once you go beyond L, there were too many derivatives. Remember, there was a derivatives to a power of m. So once m gets too big, the function vanishes. So we're going to write these things in terms of YLMs, spherical harmonics. So it's a function of theta and phi, some normalization factor, times associated Legendre function of cos theta, times di m phi. And then there's a standard convention for how to pick this normalization factor. So 
what we said in general was our wave function modulus squared integrated over all space. We want it to be equal to 1. In terms of our uh, product of functions, we separated it into a function of r. And functions of beta and phi, which we're now calling YLM. So we want this times this to be 1. So depending on how we normalize this, if we make this bigger, this one has to be smaller. If we make this one smaller, this one has to be bigger. But it would be just as good to say that each of these is individually 1. Then their product is still 1. So you can determine this normalization by integrating over sine theta d theta d phi modulus squared of this thing. And then you choose A so that that integral equals 1. Then you have a normalized spherical harmonic. And uh, we're integrating theta from 0 to pi and phi from 0 to 2 pi. Because theta starts at the z-axis goes down to the negative z-axis. Phi is in the xy plane, so it can go around 360 degrees. And given that form for L squared, uh, that we said was proportional to this thing, in square brackets, which is which appears in this equation we just solved. That tells you that YLM is an eigenfunction of L squared and LZ. So L squared acting on YLM is a big mess. Minus h bar squared, 1 over sine theta d by d theta, sine theta, t by d theta, plus 1 over sine squared theta, d squared d phi squared. So it's minus h bar squared times a our normalization constant. 1 over sine theta, d by d theta, sine theta, PLM, cos theta, times e to the i m phi, plus 1 over sine squared, d by d phi, PLM, cos theta, d by d phi squared of e to the i m phi, our YLM, gives us a minus m squared. And then the equation that we solved, it gave us, we solved to get the PLMs, tell us that this is minus L times L plus 1. That's how we define the 
the L that appears in this function came from this eigenvalue. So we get minus h bar squared a times minus L times L plus 1. PLM cos theta e to the im phi, which is h bar squared L times L plus 1 YLM. clear why it's an eigenvalue of LZ, because e to die in phi is an eigenfunction of LZ with eigenvalue h bar m. So if we have a state that's in a, a, in a if we have a spherical potential, we can separate variables and take the angular part to be these YLMs. If we have a state with a definite L and a definite M, that means it has a definite value of angular momentum squared, which is determined by this eigenvalue, and a definite value of LZ, which is MH bar. Hmm. I think we're out of time. Last time we went fast, this time we went slow. It averages out. So, if you haven't submitted your questions for bonus points on the final, I'm going to extend the deadline till noon. Okay, let's extend it to, to 1 p.m. 1 p.m. Yeah, send it, send it to jturning plus 115b at gmail. Otherwise, it'll be lost in a sea of spam.